Welcome to the 10th episode of the Mind's Eye podcast. You are listening to Dr. Annika Vanderwalt, a neuro-ophthalmologist in Melbourne um, at the World Victorian Eye and Ear Hospital. And with me, I have my co-host and colleague, um, Dr. Neil Shuey, from the World Victorian Eye and Ear Hospital as well. Tonight, we're very um, lucky in that Neil has agreed to revisit some of the key points from his talk um, at the NOSA Neurovision lecture series that um, was given in just recently in Melbourne. So welcome, Neil. Thanks, Annika. Great to be here. Great. So the, the title of your talk was Unusual and Functional Eye Movement Disorders. So I um, also note that you were the last speaker on the Sunday of the last day. So that was quite um, um, a tricky audience, I'm sure, and a tricky topic. Uh, it seems to be my lot in life for these Neurovision meetings, um, Annika, but uh, this was supposed to be an emphasis on functional eye movement disorders, um, and it followed on from a lot of other talks about nystagmus and um, supranuclear gaze palsies and a whole lot of other um, ocular motility problems. So really, we were just trying to look at some of the more rare and esoteric things in this uh, setting. Oh, that's great. So I guess just to sort of start, um, perhaps we could just briefly define again what we mean by functional symptoms or a functional um, syndrome in neurology or ophthalmology. Thanks, Annika. We, we spoke about this in a previous podcast, but to refresh uh, our listeners' memories, we're talking about medically unexplained or non-organic conditions. So these um, are symptoms um, in this case, we may see signs because of the eye movement abnormalities that come about not because of an, an organic or a structural lesion, but rather um, reflecting a, a non-organic disorder. There's different etiologies, different um, causes for this, and um, in, in brief, we talk about the majority of cases being part of an unconscious manifestation of underlying psychic stress um, for the patients. So this is known as psychogenic or conversion disorder. Um, and then there are very um, much smaller groups of patients um, who have non-organic symptoms as a result of either deliberate falsification for some form of secondary gain that's called factitious disorder um, or alternatively they're, um, they're doing it as malingering which is really that they're trying to get actual financial gain or be excused from military service some other reason so these all these conditions together we call them um, non-organic or functional um, symptoms and as you know they're very common in neurology generally we see patients with non-epileptic seizures functional movement disorders functional weakness um, we've talked about functional visual loss and now we're talking about um, abnormalities of eye movements and the eyelids, um, facial droops, these kinds of things that come about from functional reasons. Well, that's, that's really a, a good, good summary. It's always some, somewhat odd to think that you can um, voluntarily control your eye movements um, or that you can have some voluntary control. I'll tell you a story. Like when I was in primary school, I played netball against this girl who could make her eyes go like jiggly and she was pretty scary and um, that was quite freaky. Um, so what do you think? Do you think she had voluntary nystagmus? Uh, 
That sounds very much like what she had. Um, so voluntary nystagmus is actually surprisingly common. In one study, there were 8% of college students that were able to, to demonstrate this. And so it's usually, um, as you describe, their party trick. Um, and, uh, and what people can do is make their eyes rapidly oscillate um, in, often in different directions um, but it's it's different to nystagmus, and so in fact, it's it's quite poorly termed this condition. And sometimes it's used uh, the term voluntary flutter, because with nystagmus, we normally expect to see a slow phase of movement. And recall that nystagmus has either a pendular nystagmus waveform, which is a slow phase backwards and forwards, um, slow slow if you like, or we see jerk nystagmus, which is a slow and then a fast phase. Um, and the um, and we define jerk nystagmus by the direction of the fast phase. In this case, what we're talking about with voluntary flutter or voluntary nystagmus, there are back-to-back fast movements. So really, the appearance is quite freaky. Um, and most people will probably know someone, as you do, who, who can do this as their party trick. Um, and there's plenty of videos of this available online. Um, but this is uh, essentially a co-contraction of multiple extraocular muscles that some people are able to do, and it causes the eye to rapidly uh, tremble if you like. I suppose the, the, some, sometimes the tricky thing with functional disorders is that it can also be a bit easy sometimes to assume that what you're seeing is a functional problem. So if you look at someone with this sort of eye trembling, like a voluntary nystagmus pattern, um, what, what do you think you could confuse with that? Like is there a differential diagnosis, things you should be thinking about, or you call it functional? Yeah, so the... the the majority of people with this voluntary nystagmus are indeed doing it voluntarily as part of their um, their party trick performance. So they're normally quite aware that this is what's going on. They're doing it um, to show off, and um, and so it may come up in the consultation for that reason. Um, but there are a group of people that uh, have the same eye movement abnormality, which appears to be happening as a uh, as a functional symptom as we spoke before about patients having these somatization or conversion symptoms. So these are patients who are maybe stressed or anxious about um, problems and as they find, as they're trying to concentrate on on tasks or do things, that this um, eye movement abnormality comes in and it seems to be outside of their voluntary control, yet it's the same eye movement that uh, that people are otherwise doing deliberately. Um, And so when this occurs, it can be really quite difficult to differentiate from uh, a genuine organic disorder um, known as um, ocular flutter or opsoclonus because that has that same characteristic of back-to-back rapid eye movements. So just to briefly talk about that, the, the, the difference between ocular flutter and opsoclonus relates to the planes of movement. Um, Flutter is the back-to-back saccadic eye movements occurring only in the horizontal plane, whereas if it occurs in multiple planes, such as torsional, vertical, and horizontal, um, then we refer to it as opsoclonus. But they're essentially the same condition um, where there is this um, lack of inhibition of the um, saccadic pulse eye movements. And so these patients are having um, involuntary, um, superimposed eye movements with this rapid oscillation and shaking. Um, And are they, so would you say that opsoclonus is just a more severe version of ocular flutter? 
That's correct. And um, so really they come about from the same reasons. And sometimes there is uh, other neurological abnormalities that can come along as well. And the best known for this is the oxyclonus myoclonus syndrome. And this is um, sometimes referred to as dancing eyes and dancing feet. So these patients have these myoclonus movements um, of the, um, of the uh, limbs as well as having the oxyclonus movements of the eyes. I also um, note that you um, you said in your talk that these these eye movements can also occur during sleep. Yeah, so if you're seeing a patient with um, ocular flutter or opsoclonus, um, then the the key point here is that the eye movements, um, as in these extra eye movements, are genuinely random. So they're superimposed upon the normal activities um, of, of eye movements. So these patients will make pursuit movements, saccadic movements, but at, at at random times during this, they'll just get this sudden oscillation of the eyes that occurs independent of position of gaze. Um, it's often exacerbated by eye closure. So if you um, get the patients to close their eyes, you can see the, um, the movement of the eyes um, un- under the closed eyelids. And, uh, and they can also do this during convergence um, or during, um, during sleep. So this is um, definitely an indicator that these are um, involuntary movements. By contrast, when we're talking about the patients having the so-called voluntary nystagmus, um, there are often very clear indicators that these eye movement abnormalities are only occurring at set times. So we're now referring again to the, the functional disorders. These patients will often make a convergence effort to initiate the, um, the, the voluntary nystagmus, or you'll see that they're actually clearly straining their eyes. So their eyebrows may be arched up, frontalis muscles are contracting, um, they adopt a, a very um, marked staring posture. And these abnormalities can't be sustained, so they'll be, be quite brief, even though they may occur repetitively. Um, and um, and they're often only present during the time that you're actually examining the eye movements, whereas when you're looking at the patient um, more casually during history taking and at other times the eye movement abnormalities won't come along. So this, this element of um, distractibility um, is very common in other functional neurological symptoms and it seems to hold true for the, um, for the voluntary nystagmus form as well. So if you suspect something like ocular flutter or obsoclonus, um, what would be, how would you investigate that? It depends a little bit on the age of the patient. So it's different for children compared to, um, to adults. Um, with, um, with, with children, we have to be very concerned about the possibility of a neuroblastoma. And so there are multiple investigations, including imaging and urine testing, that needs to be done to look for that. And uh, really quite an exhaustive screen is usually done. Um, uh, amongst adults, there are four main types. There is a, a para-infectious brainstem encephalitis that can occur, often following on from a viral illness. Um, some People get it as part of a paraneoplastic syndrome, and this is typically in adults associated with small cell lung cancer, breast cancer, ovarian cancer, and the typical antibodies are the, the re, hu, yo, ma antibodies as well as amphiphysin. Mm. 
and then there are a number of um, metabolic and toxic causes, um, including organophosphate poisoning, strychnine, lithium, and then there's a, a significant percentage, maybe 50% of patients that are idiopathic and we never find yeah. a cause. I guess th- some one of the other um, conditions that we see sometimes and, you know, you often feel like, you know, pretty good when you diagnose this in someone who's been told for a long time that they're probably crazy, um, are people who present with these this, um, repeated brief episodes of movement, movement where they can have shimmering, shaking of the vision in the eye, um, whether um, especially in a sort of a vertical or tilted um, type appearance. Um, so I'm sort of thinking, of course, of um, superior oblique myokymia. Um, how, how would you um, approach that, that sort of presentation and, and diagnose that condition? Again, this is an organic disorder um, that um, it can – can be confusing because the movements can be very hard to see. But you're, you're right, the history is often really characteristic. So sometimes patients will report a torsional or vertical diplopia. At other times, they will describe a, a shimmering of their vision or an oscillopsia. But they're usually able to localize it to a particular eye and realize that that's the one that's causing the problem um, because there is a, a strange sensation that they get in the eye at the time. Um, and these are very brief attacks, you know, often lasting only seconds. Um, and it can be um, precipitated by contraction of the superior oblique muscle. So, Actions that tend to do that, such as looking down and in convergence, such as with reading, um, it will uh, will tend to bring this movement on. And what the patient will describe is that shimmering or um, or doubling of the vision. But what the examiner will see at the time that this occurs is a very fine um, uh, back-to-back oscillation of the um, of the affected eye in the torsional plane. So really, it's a it's a, um, a myokymia movement of the superior oblique muscle, and the movement is so fine that it's extremely difficult to see with the naked eye. Um, I usually look for this on the slit lamp um, mm. because I find that's easier to do. But people without a slit lamp may find that if they um, use the direct ophthalmoscope and um, look at the optic disc at the time that this movement is occurring, they'll actually see the um, the small oscillation movements of the eye much easier through the ophthalmoscope. And sometimes I'm, I'm just unable to reproduce this uh, symptom in the office but when the history is so characteristic um, sometimes it's just wise to move on to an empiric trial of therapy the the cause is thought to be um, compression of the cochlear nerve um, at its sort of root entry zone so it's very similar to other paroxysmal conditions like trigeminal neuralgia where we know that there's often a blood vessel that's uh, compressing the trigeminal nerve and causing these spasms of pain in this case we're getting um, aberrant firing and um, uh, and spasms if you like of the superior oblique muscle so you would treat it the same as you would with other sort of paroxysmal um, neuropathic features or syndromes well, the, the traditional treatment is carbamazepine, um, which is very similar, again, to trigeminal neuralgia. But um, one of the tricks that I was taught um, early on in my career was the use of topical beta blockers like Timolol um, for this condition. And that's um, 
a much more elegant solution to the problem if it works because it's given topically directly to the eye um, and has minimal um, systemic side effects. And um, and sometimes even when I'm unable to reproduce the symptom in the office, sometimes a trial of Timolol to the affected eye will eliminate the symptoms entirely and these patients are really grateful. Yeah. Just coming back a bit to some of the functional disorders, one of the common things we um, we often see as well is um, a condition called convergence spasm, um, which is, can often be a, um, functional. But there's also a number of things that can be organic in that situation that needs to be differentiated. So I guess perhaps if we talk first about non-organic convergence spasm, um, how would you? Um, is there anything that would make you think that this is non-organic, or perhaps just define it first? So convergence spasm is a, a spasmodic um, contraction of the medial recti to cause convergence, but it's um, called that there's this triad of actions that occur during the um, during convergence. So when you um, normally look to converge your eyes on a near object, there is the inward movement of the eyes, that vergence movement inwards. There's also... Um, accommodation of the lens and the contraction of the ciliary muscle and there's also contraction of the sphincter pupillae muscle so these things accommodation pupil meiosis and convergence all happen together and this of course is normally a voluntary movement and some patients have these spasms of convergence which will make the eyes suddenly turn in and can mimic a six nerve palsy or a bilateral six nerve palsy and I've seen a number of patients like this and um, I'm sure I'm not alone with my colleagues as well with where people have been admitted and extensively worked up for all sorts of conditions including stroke or um, suspicion of a mass lesion because they have this unusual eye movement abnormality but the the real key to this in addition to the things that I already mentioned, which is that it may only happen during examination of the eyes, not happening at other random times when you're just, say, for example, taking the history. Um, again, there might be these you know, elements of effort that can be elicited with the raising of the eyebrows um, and that staring movement that occurs. The real key is looking for constriction of the pupil. And so often when you're testing the eye movements, you'll see that the pupils are um, at a normal size for the room illumination, but the moment that this um, eye or eyes appear to turn in, the pupils will become smaller, and that's really telling you that this is a convergence movement that's superimposed rather than a um, uh, than a weakness of the lateral rectus. And that makes sense. Um, um, how would you differentiate that from um, convergence, retraction, nystagmus? So. Um, Again, I've, I've seen this be confused before, although the movements are, are quite different. So convergence retraction nystagmus is part of the dorsal midbrain syndrome or parano syndrome. Um, and the, the listeners may recall that there are other elements to this, such as failure of upgaze, there may be lid retraction, um, there may be light near dissociation of the pupils. All of these things can be characteristic of a, of a dorsal midbrain lesion. And convergence retraction nystagmus occurs when the patient attempts to look in upgaze, typically with a fast or saccadic eye movement. But instead of them being able to look in upgaze, Instead, there is a miswiring and a co-contraction of the um, medial and lateral recti muscles. So that causes a 
convergence movement inwards of the eyes as well as a retraction which can be seen best from looking at the side where the eye actually retreats backwards in the in the orbits during these um during these muscular contractions because of the the co-contraction of medial and lateral recti um the the best way to try and elicit this if you're looking for it is to use the optokinetic nystagmus drum and so if you um if you rotate the drum downwards then that should generate an upwards um uh okn rapid eye movement and um and that will usually bring upon this um uh this particular movement so it's quite a characteristic movement that's brought on by a characteristic stimulus different and there's plenty of videos available of this on the on the internet for people to look at so i i also wanted to just ask you about a few other you know really odd things um i wondered if you could just say a brief word about functional gaze um limitations so you know, patients where can't get them to do a normal pursuit movement or look in a certain direction. Um, how would you? What would give you an idea that 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 what's happening is actually a fun, a functional gaze problem? It, this is a. I find this a really difficult area um, because um, it, it's it will simulate a complex ophthalmoplegia or a or a um a, an organic gaze palsy. Um, and so it, it is an area where probably investigations do need to be done very carefully um, to ensure that we don't miss something, specifically thinking here about mimics such as myasthenia gravis, which can um, really confuse people. So it's always worth uh, investigating for this first. But um, when when this is occurs, quite rare, but, but patients often will say there's difficulty um, looking in a particular direction, often um, in the vertical plane. And um, and they'll have uh, when you when you ask them to try and look in this direction, there'll be lots of apparent signs of effort, such as eyelid fluttering and facial grimacing, as they attempt to do the eye movements. But then again, the key is to watch these patients casually when you're not examining the eyes, and sometimes as they're just walking around the room or um, or you're talking to them during the history taking, you will see that there are in fact these random eye movements that are occurring um, spontaneously. And so this differentiates them from an organic gaze palsy where usually there is um, other abnormalities such as slow saccades, and that's something that's very hard to do. In fact, I think it's impossible to do um, voluntarily. So if you see a saccadic eye movement that's occurring at a slow pace, that really does point to an organic disorder. Um, and usually when people attempt to look in up gaze, um, the eyebrows will elevate. Mm. I remember um, a case, I'm sure you recall, that we saw recently where we had um, a, um, a lady in her 60s who appeared to have um, problems with initiating gaze and um, you know we were debating whether this was a functional gaze limitation or ocular motor apraxia um, and of course she ended up having my senior gravis but there you go yeah. Yes, that, so, that one is, is burned into my memory and um, and we must uh, always check for things like the acetylcholine receptor antibody. Yeah, yeah. Last functional one maybe to talk about was just to um, have a think about functional ptosis. Um, so patients who, you know, appear to have this droopy eyelid, um, would you again just be looking at the facial, the facial features accompanying that, like lifting of the eyebrows or that sort of thing? Look, I, I would really um, refer patient, uh, refer listeners to the um, to an excellent paper, Kasky et al. in Lancet Neurology, two thousand and fifteen, K A S K I. Jonathan Stone's one of the other authors, and um, and they talk about functional cranial nerve 
um, abnormalities. So they have some wonderful um, diagrams and figures in that paper that go through um, go through this issue. But essentially, the the distinction here is between um, a ptosis and a, and a droopy eyelid. Um, assessing from blepharospasm um, or, or functional eyelid closure. So in, in all these cases, the eyelid can appear to be lower than it should be. Um, yeah. So when there is um, contraction of orbicularis muscles um, occurring in, say, um, a, a functional eyelid closure, you'll see that the eyebrow is actually coming down. So, um, so there's an obvious contraction that's causing the eye, um, the, the palpebral aperture to narrow rather than it being due to weakness. When, when we have um, the, the opposite case where there is um, a, a genuine ptosis um, that's occurring because of weakness of the um, levator palpebral superioris muscle, then frontalis is usually elevated and the brow is usually elevated as the patient is desperately trying to overcome this and to, um, to bring their eyelid out the way. So really yeah. looking at the position of the eyebrow is critical. Back to just a couple of um, weird things. Um, so I have to ask you about Whipple's disease, which is, of course, you know, the favourite diagnosis to rule uh, to, to whip out <laughs> when, when we don't know what's going on. Um, but, um, you know, typically presenting, you know, someone with weight loss, diarrhoea, um, joint pain, um, so unexplained fevers and lymphadenopathy, but that can also have a very particular um, ocular motility abnormality. Do you want to just explain or talk about that? Yes. Yeah, so um, as you say, this is a condition that's often talked about but less often actually present. Um, but the, the, the key things are that you can get a supranuclear gaze palsy. So um, this can cause vertical um, eye movement abnormalities that may mimic what we see with progressive supranuclear palsy. And the other really characteristic and, in fact, pathognomonic um, feature that can be seen with this is called oculomasticatory myorrhythmia. So this is a, um, a syndrome where there are rhythmic movements of the masticatory muscles and at the same time, there is this very characteristic pendular vergence oscillations of the eyes, um, which is quite striking and um, and unlike any of the other abnormalities that we've seen. So, um, so this particular constellation of symptoms um, is indicative of Whipple's disease. Yeah. There's a couple of other conditions where um, other facial muscles or particularly masticatory muscles can be affected. Um, so I'm thinking here about, you know, oculopalatal tremor um, and then also the um, fascio-pharyngeal-glossomasticatory diplegia. Um, did you want to say just two words about each of those? Because I think we're kind of running out of time. Sure, sure. Um, oculopalatal tremor, I think, is actually quite common. Um, and it um, it comes about because of a lesion in the triangle of Guillain-Molleray, um, which for all intents and purposes is the um, dorsal pons. Um, and so patients often have um, uh, facial palsies. They can have a, a um, horizontal gaze palsy or six nerve palsies. Um, and uh, that's often um, the result of the original injury. And then months down the track, they develop this syndrome of pendular um, uh, random um, and quite variable um, oscillations of the eyes, as well as these um, pendular um, 
movements of the master of the um, pharyngeal muscles, um, and sometimes even other uh, muscles around the um, the limbs as well. So, um, so certainly look out for that if the patient's had a brainstem lesion um, and then develops what appears to be an unusual nystagmus down the track. Um, and the the other condition that you mentioned um, is um, is the result of the bilateral opercular syndrome and i just put that in at the end of my talk as a as an extremely rare um phenomenon but um it it is a scenario where bilateral lesions essentially to the um the opercular regions of the frontal lobe which is is in a sense part of the premotor areas um of voluntary control um for motor control can lead to a dissociation between reflex and voluntary movements um, and so this is an organic condition um, where patients can have problems with speech, swallowing, eye movements, eyelid closure, um, yeah. smiling, all of these are actions um, where they, the reflex movements are intact but the voluntary movements are, are affected. And so, again, this is one of the reasons to be cautious when we're um, assigning a functional etiology to conditions. Um, there are some scenarios where these abnormalities can indeed be organic. Yes, it's always good to just have a, you know, just to think at the end of our podcast about, you know, how to approach um, some of these odd um, eye movement disorders. Um, and w- what would your approach be um, to try and um, work out what's going on and how to investigate further? I think the take-home message from all of these um, these points is to look at the context of the patient that we're seeing. So, um, you know, are there other symptoms or signs suggestive of neurological disorders elsewhere? Um, when are the movements um, occurring? Is it only during examination? Is it present spontaneously? Are there signs that suggest that this is due to voluntary effort um, rather than to, um, to occurring um, sporadically? And um, the um, and to look for those other features that can really be um, uh, a sign that this is a genuine organic disorder. Um, so, for example, the, um, the the slow saccades that we might see during a um, uh, during a, a a organic gaze palsy. Um, these things are really key. Um, looking for the um, the pupil constriction of a convergence spasm, I think is really a very key point that can't be um, underestimated because that's um, that's a common diagnosis that people practicing neuro-ophthalmology will see and uh, really need to be alert for it and, and looking very carefully for it. Yeah. No, I think that that's fantastic. So um, I think that gives a very good overview of this topic. It is, of course, very difficult to visualize these conditions if you haven't, if you're not looking at a video. So I would advise our um, listeners to have a look at the novel website um, at www.novel.utah.edu, um, which has got a fantastic collection of videos and um, rare conditions, um, and it's very a very useful educational tool. And of course, some of the, pa- the paper that Neil mentioned would also be very useful. Um, and feel free to email us if you have anything odd. We would love to see it. And I think with that, we'll, we'll conclude this podcast. Thank you, Neil.